This is Pastoring Out Loud, a podcast for Bethlehem Baptist Church's South Campus in Lakeville, Minnesota. Are you interested in learning more about our church? Go to Bethlehem.Church forward slash south. Today we have a listener mailbag with Dave Zuliger and Nick Rowan. I, it is uh, presently 12.05, and my first sip of coffee, thank you Dave Zuliger, was like 40 minutes ago or something like that. So I'm gonna be I'm gonna be pretty disengaged unless the caffeine really hits the bloodstream hard. Daniel's been making lots of loud sighs that have been showing how tired he is. <laughs> They're involuntary, I promise you. I promise you. Uh, do we even want to do a random question? I don't know. I don't got no random questions for you all. Hey, how's your tooth, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, thanks for asking publicly. On the podcast, I'm uh, I get to get a root canal next uh, next Tuesday. Root canal. Don't tap your phone on the table. That's Sorry. bad for the audio. Don't ask me about my teeth. I know. Um, no, I get to yeah, I get to get a root canal next Tuesday. Sorry, man. I've had one I've other never one. Had one. I've had one other one, and it was. I mean, it's not. It wasn't what I would call fun. Like not how I'd plan to use my afternoon. But last time it wasn't awful. So hopefully it'll be similar. Did you get ice cream afterwards? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think you're supposed to, are you? I have no idea. <laughs> Never had one. Great. I just remember being sore for like two or three days. Have you had a root canal, Nick? I have not. Wouldn't you hope, though, that after a root canal you'd have something cold? And Although, wouldn't the cold screw with the tooth? I don't know. Mm, yeah. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you can let us know what that's like. Or we'll just ask Dave at the next podcast. That's, that's right. I'll let you know next week. <laughs> I know they did a test to see if I would need one, and the way they tested that was with, they called it a cold test. That really hurt. What did they put on your... They dipped something into, like, something really cold <laughs> and just held it on your tooth and said, raise your hand when the pain stops. <laughs> Raise your hand when, when the, the pain, pain stops. stops. Did you raise your hand? I did after about ten seconds of intense, sharp pain, mm, suffering. And they said we're going to do it again. Thankfully, that one didn't hurt. But I was, I was like, oh, good. Let's do it again. Great. So, questions. Four of them today for this particular listener mailbag. And if you do not hear your question on this particular episode, we have a few more, uh, another three or four waiting in the wings that I think we'll probably try to do another listener mailbag because uh, these stretch back a bunch of months. Uh, we'll try to do another one here before too long. So first, Dave, Nick, would we ever consider giving up our 501c3 status, nonprofit status for purposes of uh, taxes, if the Equality Act is signed into law? Now, this stretches back a number of months. There was a uh, the Equality Act was moving its way through Congress, which was essentially um, a promise by the Biden administration that he said during the election cycle um, that he would seek to sign into law that um, you know, removes discriminatory practices, as they're called legally, on uh, you know, discriminatory hiring practices on account of somebody's sexual identity um, and other things along those lines. Do you guys want to talk a little bit about why that was concerning for nonprofits? I think ultimately it did not pass, so maybe a little bit of a moot point. But if something like that were to happen in the United States, like what would we, 
what we think about that, how would we process that, what would we seek to do as as a church? Yeah, so I mean, I think the thought and the concerning part if was that if that was passed into law, would that force even nonprofits such as churches or even parachurch ministries or things like that to be forced to hire people that believe directly against, you know, what the church believes on, you know, issues such as sexuality and morality, things like that. Um, so I think that's, you know, the, the crux of the concerning part is would we be forced to violate our own beliefs for the purposes of hiring indiscriminately, (laughs) uh, based on the world's definition of what that is. So what would we do? Well, I don't know exactly what we would do, uh, partly because it didn't pass, thankfully. <laughs> yeah. um, I think if it if something like that though would pass, um, I would. I don't think we would automatically give up our five hundred one c three status um, without it being tested in the real world. So I I I guess it would be kind of like a wait and see type thing. Um, and what I would say is that historically, even, even if laws have become, you know, laws, the, the Supreme court does have a history of being fairly robust in upholding religious liberty. Um, and so I would want to see how that would play out. Um, certainly we would never, we wouldn't hire people that directly opposed our beliefs. So, you know, whatever that comes to in the future, we're not going to cross that line. Um, but I would want to see how that's actually being played out in the courts. And obviously there would be challenges and I would just be interested to see how that would play out. Yeah. So the simple answer to the question is sure. We drop, yeah, we drop anything that would make us do anything that's disobedient to God, what we see laid out in Scripture. You know, even as we've been walking through Acts, though, we do see that uh, there are times where it's a good thing to appeal <laughs> to the to the the government and make your case to them. And we've seen in Acts sometimes that goes well, and sometimes that doesn't go so well. Sometimes it you know it brings about a measure of freedom to proclaim the gospel and operate in accord with the Bible. And other times it just brings about direct persecution. And so what I would say is we, we would never hope. We don't hope in the government. Uh, we're citizens of heaven before we're citizens of this country. But it's okay, like Nick's saying, I think, uh, to not just immediately feel the need to drop the 5013C, but to first say we're simply not going to comply. And if we get brought... Uh, if we get brought to court on that or something, um, we're willing to uh, both appeal to our government for what we believe to be right as citizens of this country and perhaps even be uh, one of the places that would seek to uphold those values. I think both those things are okay to do, and we wouldn't hope in that. Um, but I think that that would be an okay approach to take. And if, if it came down to it and the only way was to drop it, that'd be fine with me too. Yep. We would want it. We would definitely seek to uphold, um, the different spheres of authority 
that as we've talked about in other podcasts, where the church has a sphere of authority, which is the keys of the kingdom, and the government has a different sphere of authority. And we would definitely seek to, we want to be the church and have our authority, and the government has no right to take that authority. Um, so, but whatever that looks like, you know, we just have to see. Good. Next question. <laughs> so we have uh, one, uh, well, it's really two questions, but first uh, a statement for context. Uh, this listener says, I occasionally use the Church of England Book of Common Prayer to help structure and articulate my prayers. The Book of Common Prayer uses books from the Apocrypha in their scripture readings, and I usually avoid those readings because I don't know how to approach them. First, can you explain what the Apocrypha is and give pastoral insight on if or how to read it? Second, do you have any favorite books of prayers or liturgies to recommend? So maybe we'll just take the first one. Random question of the day. Daniel, what's your favorite book of the Apocrypha? Um, <laughs> I mean, I like the I like Maccabees, all the Maccabees. They're interesting history um, that, as best we can tell, tells the true story of Maccabean revolt, albeit with some probably hagiography, like, but, uh, you know, difficult to tell what's actually... What's, hagiogra- what, hagiogra- what's hagiography? Yeah, hagiography <laughs> is like... Uh, um, hagias, uh, like saintly or saintography, you know, writing. So it's a, it's a biography or writing about somebody in you know, where the writing is done in such a way as to make them appear more saintly than they actually are. Um, so I'm, I already got the rights for your hagiography, mm, Dave. That's for, sweet. Yeah, I know. I think it's like, um, you know, Better than most, the Dave Zuliger story, <laughs> something like that. Be- better than some. Better than most. Worse than others. No, better, better than most. Um, so uh, the initial question, uh, can you explain what the Apocrypha is and give pastoral insight on if or how to read it? Go ahead, Dave. <laughs> yeah, the Apocrypha are some books that were written. I mean, it's we're really talking about the how the canon came together and the Apocrypha are some books that were written that eventually uh, were deemed not inspired, uh, not inspired, not part of the canon uh, by the by some of the founding fathers of the faith. Um, the, the Catholic Church, uh, they're part of the Catholic Bible, and the Catholic Church would still affirm them, uh, read them, count them as authoritative. Um, that's that's the basic difference. Is they're they're in the Catholic Bible, and they're not in the Bible that most of our listeners would be reading. You know, the sixty six books, Old and New Testament. Want me to say more than that, or just stop there? That's good. I mean, they're just so they are um, books that in the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church, with some variants, there are additions to the Old Testament, um, whole books, and then uh, additions to some currently existing uh, Old Testament books. And I mean, how do I treat those? Uh, for me personally, I read some of them in light of my studies in Revelation because I think they shine a light on how to understand certain genres of Scripture. And then certainly like reading, uh, like I mentioned, First and Second Maccabees, just a historic account of the Maccabean Revolt. Um, these can be useful things uh, I kind of share with the listener 
some hesitations in regards to treating them as scripture in a liturgy, especially a book of prayer. Um, and yet, in as much as those things might reflect true things, uh, I just treat them as I would any uh, crafted by human uh, statement or prayer that would shine light on something true about God. So I don't feel that per- isn't in and of itself inspired. Yeah, it isn't is. in of itself inspired um, by any means. So I mean, on a Sunday morning, like when Nick or someone leads us through a prayer together that is not inspired, but reflects truth. Um, I think things from the Apocrypha can inform our prayers, just not inform our prayers in an inspired way. So share with the readers certainly some hesitation. What else would you say? Nick, would you say anything about the next uh, apocryphal reading that we're going to share on a Sunday morning? Yeah, well, we won't be doing that. We won't be reading from the Apocrypha. So, yeah, I mean... Did you hear that, Stephen Lee? We're not going to be reading from the Apocrypha. Great, great. Thanks for clearing that up. Um, Yeah, and we don't do that because it's not the Word of God. Um, And, yeah, and I would just say if if we're doing things like in our devos and that are shaping our prayers and, you know, shaping the way that we talk with God, I would want to mostly focus on the Bible and the inspired word of God and, um, have those things shape my thoughts and prayers. And, um, cause that's, that's the inspired word. And that's the thing that's going to, um, be useful for, you know, rebuke and encouragement and correction and all the things that the Bible says that the Bible is useful for. (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, if I'm going to, you know, like a book, I'm going to go to the Bible more often than not. It doesn't mean you can't use other books. There are devotional books and there are books of prayers, but they're not inspired. Um, so yeah. So interact with them accordingly. Anything else you'd say, Dave? I think, I think that's good. Great. So second part of this question, or uh, second part question in regards to this, uh, do you have any favorite books of prayers or liturgies to recommend? Yeah, I like, uh, there's a couple of them that I like. Um, the first one is uh, The Valley of Vision which is a Puritan book of prayers, just collected um, prayers um, throughout uh, Puritan history that really, um, it's organized in a helpful way, it's organized into different categories, and it's always filled with scripture. And um, and a lot of the prayers are just basically just praying back, you know, scripture in various ways. Um, and they're always God-focused, and I, I just find them really helpful. You know, sometimes when you're praying, you just need something to center your thoughts. And that's been helpful for me. So that's one. Um, As far as just liturgies or, you know, catechismic type things, uh, I've really enjoyed using um, the New City Catechism as a starting point for forming thoughts and creating systems for scripture. Uh, That's been helpful for me. Um, it has a bit more of a Presbyterian <laughs> slant to it, but um, many, you know, there are brothers in Christ, and so a lot of that that book is helpful too. Those are a couple of things off the top of my head. Good. Anything you'd add, Dave? 
Yeah, I've, I've done some uh, Valley of Vision as well. I I uh, I always disappoint people, especially uh, at Bethlehem, because I'm not a big like I don't I don't read tons and tons of books or know tons and tons of resources. So I I, <laughs> I regularly. I'm just going to the Psalms, and that's really boring, <laughs> like everyone's answer throughout all of history. But I, I don't have other, I just don't really have other places I go or use. Um, it's normally just coming out of devotionals, and then if I'm, if I do want something like Nick said, you know, that, that idea of kind of centering prayers, then I'll go to the Psalms and center myself that way. But I don't have any other good resources to recommend. How about you, Daniel? I might have a few. So Every Moment Holy is actually a modern book of liturgies uh, written by a guy, and I think his name is David McKelvey, Mm -hmm. uh, I think is his Mm -hmm. name. So there's a couple volumes of it, and really what it is is uh, here's a, I think he's Anglican uh, in background. He's writing liturgies or prayers and rhythms for different kinds of things in life. So everything from like upon coming to an ocean for the first time or... Uh, upon suffering and disappointment, or uh, a liturgy for morning coffee—that's that's a favorite of mine. Um, uh, or nearly afternoon coffee. Nearly in afternoon this case. coffee. That's true. Um, so it's very basic. They're they're prayers to read. Um, they're not inspired, obviously, but I find them helpful for centering. Um, you know, uh, my thoughts and mind. My wife will read them out loud sometimes. I actually, really like the Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer that I probably lean towards um, the book of common prayer has been like revised a lot (laughs) over the years. And so I think it's, uh, I don't think it's as far back as like there's a 1660 or 65 revision that's after um, uh, there was some political turmoil in England and they were trying to figure out some stuff. Um, But there's a, there's a modernized version. I think of that one that I own um, that is, in my mind, a, a really good one. It's been revised a bunch in the 1718 and even 1900s in ways that I think are like fine, but also feels like there's a lot of just other things in there as you see the uh, uh, just the theology of the Anglican Church kind of morphing in some different directions. So there's that one. I really love, this is not a, a liturgy as per se, but it's a catechism. I really love the Heidelberg Catechism as a personal devotional tool. Um, you know, it's a great, great um, thing for my own soul and care for myself and even encouragement for my family. I don't, they're not memorizing it or anything, but just, uh, you know, a way to encourage our souls, which the Heidelberg was, you know, originally in the 1500s created to be a pastoral tool for uh, in the midst of Protestant Reformation, so much unrest in continental Europe. Um, you know, comforting and centering people's hearts on Christ. So those three are, are great, really great. Great. Last question for this particular mailbag. So Dave, Nick, how do you use your social media? Or maybe just like, what do you use your social media for when you use it? Well, I uh, no longer have any social media, so I... When I use social media, I am getting screenshots from other people wondering what I think about things. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Okay. So you're using social media 
by proxy. <laughs> by proxy. But I, we, I just don't have accounts anywhere anymore. Did you eliminate your Twitter yet, Nick? Yes, I did. Okay. I no longer have Twitter. Uh, I still have a Facebook and an Instagram account, but I'm never, ever, ever on them. <laughs> so functionally, I don't use social media at all anymore either. I'm not posting. I'm not interacting on it. Um, yeah. I have Twitter and Facebook and generally use them to just kind of be aware of what's going on in different people's lives. I think it's become a pretty significant part of how people interact in our modern age. And I tend not to post too much or do other things, partially because, at least in my mind, I'm a pastor and I don't know all the various ways that people might perceive things posted um, that might potentially close off conversations that I'd rather have in person. There's just so many variables that I just don't know um, about stuff. So posting stuff about my kids or, you know, maybe pictures or stuff for people either here or back where we're from, Ohio, feels like a good a good thing for that. But generally don't use it as a medium for back and forth communication. Um, for I'd yeah. rather do that in person. Yeah. Yeah, that was our, or that was my wrestling with it is it is a good place to, um, just interact in some ways. And so was, I, I kind of took a month test to see, do I feel like I'll be missing out? And what I found during that month is a lot more people reached out via phone or email. And I had a chance to talk, you know, face to face or phone to phone with people a little bit more, which was helpful. And then Kelly and I, for a long time have just rather than kind of doing the public posting, um, for family to keep in touch that way have just started like shared albums, you know, where you can kind of just throw stuff in a shared album with a group of family or whatever. So, so there there are things that it's good for that we've kind of had to find other ways to uh, make up for. Um, And I, I think it's totally uh, redeemable. And like you said, pastoral in some ways to be on there. I just, it's, it's just a wisdom call for what am I missing compared to what am I gaining? I think so could be seasonal for me. Um, although I, th- I don't think it is, but it could be. Mm-hmm. Great guys. Anything else you'd want to say about social media? It's use, it's misuse. Yeah. I mean, I, the only other thing, I mean, you don't, if you've been around South campus very long, you don't, it's not a secret about how, what we think about the dangers of social media. And so again, it can be redeemable. It can be used in a good way, but you, I think you have to work really hard to make it that and to not fall into the traps that it so easily lends itself to. That's designed to yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. It's designed for something. It's designed to make you use it as much as possible so that they can get the ads in front of you so that they can make money. That's what it's designed for. And they have algorithms, and they have all the information and everything you've ever clicked, and they are putting things in front of you that make you react. And it doesn't lend itself to nuanced communication. It just doesn't. And so um, you just have to be really, really aware. (laughs) And it's so easy. It's just so easy to fall into the traps of communicating in such a way that you wouldn't face-to-face or um, to just believe everything that it puts in front of you as, well, this is the dominant view and this is the only right view, when in reality it's it's an echo chamber. And, um, and And it lends itself to platform building where you start to post and you start to do things because you're getting likes and because you're getting 
feedback and then that subtly changes how you do things and how you live your life and your priorities and your identity. And these are real dangers. So I'm not trying to be really hard on people that still use social media and want to redeem it. I'm just saying you've got to be wise and you've got to be careful. Yeah. Yeah. We as humans naturally seek affirmation in our social circles and um, I think naturally are drawn towards those that share similar opinions there because of that. Mm-hmm. And so social media is very much a place where that can, that can happen a lot and therefore become um, a place where I seek my affirmation mainly um, instead of maybe a more appropriate affirmation. I don't think there's anything wrong with necessarily seeking affirmation online, but I think sometimes that happens to the detriment of feeling uh, connectivity or even affirmation in our personal lives. Um, so I think it's just a, uh, like, like so many things, I mean, technology, social media use, it's not good or bad. It's just a thing that reveals what's already in our hearts. And so social media can actually be a wonderful tool if you're willing to use it in hindsight and say, like, what's in my heart? Lord, search me, know me, try me, see if there's a wicked way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. Any, anything could be used to that end, including social media. So. Brothers, thanks for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Dave's eyebrow says thanks for having him, too. Mm-hmm.